Today's episode is brought to you by Balulu Studios. Balulu Studios is a small event space located at 3131 Bull Street in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, visit balulustudios.com backslash event space. Hi, hello, this is Kevin. Thank you for listening to another episode of The 10 Frame. In this episode, Kelly and I talk with Chase Lanier, an artist and educator currently living in Augusta, Georgia. We talked about his his career, but also specifically, uh, we unpacked some information about the Mocha GA show, the Gathered Six show that he's included in. If you want to see that exhibit virtually, go to mochaga.org. If you'd like to learn more about my own work, follow me on Instagram at Kevin Will Paint. And you can find Kelly on Instagram also at Kelly K. Thompson Art. So, Chase, thank you for taking some time to talk with us today. Um, I'm interested in learning more about your work. I know I met you at the opening of the Mocha GA Gathered Six show, and that's where we're both showing some work. But I wanted to maybe learn a little bit more about your your history like where did you grow up are you from georgia or can you talk a little bit about your past and maybe how that might influence your work so i live in augusta georgia and i was born and raised here and um when i left for college went off for a few years and then was gone for the better part of 15 years and i lived in um studied in italy and mexico lived in Texas and then Virginia where I taught. And then I came back here about 12 years ago and, um, through the teaching and everything else and retail. And it's all just kind of a constant juggling. I made the decision, you know, 20 years ago to always have a separate job from the art world so that I could continue working on my art the way I needed to work on it. Because, um, I knew that I was never going to really be, in a commercial sense, a successful type artist, you know, someone who's able to turn around art quickly and meet deadlines and have this kind of quantity of work sold. So um, that's allowed me to continue keeping my art explorations um, focused on what I kind of want to do with them. I was curious, you mentioned Italy and and Mexico. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing there? Yeah, Um, Italy was through the um, through the University of Georgia's Cortona campus there and so it was a it was a summer abroad and um you know an opportunity to get out of the united states for a minute and um they'd had a program there for over 20 years at that point so they were established within the town there and it was just you know totally different environment surrounded by you know 500 to 600 years worth of artistic history predominantly you know european but um just fascinating to be there. And then Mexico is where I did my student teaching. So I was in Guadalajara, Mexico for four and a half months, um, being able to teach there and live and travel and such. When you were in Cortona, was that a learning experience for you? I mean, were you were you studying or did you have a TA oh, yeah. there as well? No, that was um, that was undergrad. And it was, you know, it was an opportunity to take classes that would count towards my degrees in painting. I did not take art education there. But, you know, there, you know, being able to work on artwork in that traditional 
Renaissance style of building up a painting by working from that neutral ground and coming up, you know, figuring out where the light and dark needs to be to find that balance and keep things interesting. Um, being able to see all the work there in Italy of people that have been working on this for centuries um, was inspirational in that sense, for sure. A, a good foundation to have some of that. I know a lot of people get that in, in sure. undergraduate school, but most of it's through textbooks or, you know, online images, but it's way different to see it in person, size, scale, you know, the actual color, um, texture, all that. Seeing things like, I remember really being taken aback by, there was this one Caravaggio that I forget the museum, but it was at the long end of this hallway. And there are all these galleries off on the left as you walk down, but you're like, what felt like like 50 or 60 yards away, but you see it and in your mind, you're like, oh yeah, that's that painting from a book. And you get closer and closer and you start to realize the scale of this thing. Mm -hmm. And it takes a quality of being larger than us. And um, definitely enjoyed that aspect. And you had that ability to consider this thing that has a presence in the space of the viewers. For sure. And you also mentioned Virginia. What were you, where in Virginia were you? Um, I, I arrived and um, I first lived outside of Gloucester over by the bay mm -hmm. and then eventually moved into where I stayed for about eight years. And um, I went up there to teach. It was a last minute decision in the end of July that moved two weeks later to teach. Where were you teaching? I'm, I'm from Virginia. That's why I was asking. Um, I was in King and Queen County. So, okay. um, do you know where Williamsburg? I do. Yeah, I had. We've had. I have relatives that went to William and Mary, played football there, and and I went to VCU in Richmond. So, and I grew up in Northern okay. Virginia. So, all over the state, pretty much. My daughter lives yeah, in Richmond Roanoke was, right now. Okay. Yeah. I. I mean, I love Richmond. It was. It was great to see a city that. Um, was very similar to the city I grew up in here in Augusta, that you had this kind of downtown core die back in the 70s with the advent of, of suburbanization and malls taking retail out. But you could see within Richmond how VCU's presence right there in the middle of town helped to kind of revitalize that aspect and produce all this activity that I think helped to give a lot of what Richmond's identity is um, from that artistic endeavor. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, in in some ways, it's kind of like SCAD here in Savannah, um, on a little bit of a different scale. Um, they're not doing. I don't think they're reaching into the community as much. And you know, SCAD takes all the um, historical buildings and and brings them back to life. And um, okay. in Richmond, I wish I had bought a house down in the fan when I was there, because um, there were there were some deals back in the day. Not so much anymore, though. Uh, I was teaching um, just high school art um, in King and Queen County, which is a county almost directly above William Williamsburg. It's like the middle peninsula of those mm -hmm. three. Yep. It is it is in the middle of nowhere. Yep. And um, they had one traffic light for the entire county. Good access to the water, though. I mean, if you like water, weren't you? If you wanted to get out on yep. on the boat sometimes. Yeah. I'll, that was an interesting thing about when I was in Austin. Um, even though I lived at one point maybe 300 feet from the from the town lake in the middle of town um the ground you know 15 feet from the riverbank was dry as a bone and so all through austin everything's just dry and um creatively i had kind of a hard time out there because it was also just upon leaving college so you lose that entire structure mm -hmm. of accountability and i'm out there i don't know anybody and um just the geography 
geography is different. But when I moved to Virginia, just the moisture kind of being in the ground was felt more comfortable in home and, you know, home like in that way. How do you like Augusta? Augusta's, I mean, it's, you know, hometown. You grow, grow up in there, you know, there are aspects that are still the same. Um, a lot has changed. It's a good size city for just being able to do your thing and be be involved. Um, the arts community here, there's a lot of people, you know, making art, trying hard, making lots of events and exhibitions and pop-ups and doing things, um, which I think is more manageable than, say, Richmond. You know, when I was in Richmond, I was I could go participate and, like, show up, but I could never really get into the community up there because I think a lot of that also grew out of VCU. And so having been a transplant in my mid-20s, I never really found a way to kind of be in that space as an artist. Um, and so being in a smaller city like Augusta gave me opportunities to, um, you know, create opportunities, um, create art shows, create exhibitions, cobble together people, you know, collaborate where you can. And because it's so small and almost zero expectations from anybody, you can kind of step in and almost do whatever you want. And that actually allows you to push the boundaries of what you normally would do instead of feeling like I have to fit into this thing because that's how things are done. Right. Um, so that aspect of Augusta, I've really enjoyed. Are you, are you making work that is similar to the work that you were doing in Virginia and Austin, the work that you're creating in Augusta, or can you talk a little bit about maybe the work that you're making today? Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's funny you mentioned Austin because I, you know, I forget about this oftentimes. Um, the year that I was in Austin, um, was when I started really tinkering more with sculpture. So using cheesecloth and shellac and wire to build these structures. Um, it was a thing that I did then for like, you know, a matter of a few months. And then I moved, started teaching, um, didn't have space, didn't know what to do, got back into painting. And so painting's really what I did for the most part up until about, 2016, 17, and that's when I started dabbling into the sculpture. And um, that, in retrospect, kind of came out of a necessity to see the form of what I want to create rather than creating the two-dimensional illusion of it. Um, and, but yeah, everything had pretty much been painting for a good 20, 25 years with uh, some small dabbles into um, sculpture, but nothing that, that ever really took hold. But um, now you know, things, I still dream of doing another oil painting. I don't know what it will be one day, but, you know, there's that thing in the back of my mind. Um, but no, um, the red is the, the red and shellac are kind of the main things that I work with now. And um, using some sort of longer linear thing like brass rod or wooden dowels um, to help kind of add some structure. And then I use the cheesecloth and the thread to kind of bind and um, add tension to everything. And then the shellac to kind of fix it all into place. Can you talk a little bit about that transition from painting to sculpture? I'm talking also from a personal space where I'm starting to dabble a little bit in in sculpture. Um, But when I look at your work, the sculptural work that you're doing now, it seems like a very um, intentional kind of exploration of texture and surface uh, the one piece i'm thinking of i don't remember the name of it but it almost looks like um egg row on top of a piece of wood and it's got legs but you have the if you look up close at least from what i can see in the in the images the bubble shapes or the egg shapes on the top it's got a beautiful gloss to it and you can kind of see into it and then it's sitting on this this wooden surface that has this 
you know, it's very dull and looks like it's a rough cut piece of wood, but you can see that it looks like the tension between the materials is very in the nature of the making. That is, that is it on the head. Yeah. The, it's, um, you know, it's, so there was the kind of timeline things and, and that piece. Um, I'll kind of speak to that piece that with the egg row kind of looking pattern on top first, and then I'll kind of go back to that transition out of painting. Yeah. Sorry um, to me to jump see. into the timeline, but that piece just kind of stuck in my head. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was a really fun piece. Um, I did that about um, a year and a half ago or so. And I had all these little paintings that I had done 15 years ago. And um, when I left teaching the first time I wanted to, um, I left to get back into painting regularly and it, make it more of a daily practice. And so I did these like, you know, mandalic pieces. I call them process pieces, just things to help me get the, get the creative juices flowing and get back into color theory and, you know, just everything with, with that. And so I did these and I probably did 30 of them or so. I saw those but too. They almost the, looked like meditations. Um, you know, when I was looking, I was yeah. like, wow, that's so different from the sculptural work that you're doing now. I could see you just kind of sitting there with, you have all these fine brush strokes. They do remind you of a mandala, but I could see that being a kind of a, a really a Zen kind of meditational okay. process. Yeah. It's, it, it was interesting getting getting back into doing art on a regular basis, having you know taught taught for the better part of four years, and worked on art somewhat. But you know, I was in my twenties, and I just didn't have that much of a focus on art. It kind of, I did it because I wanted to here and there. But those paintings helped me to kind of lock back into this daily practice. And um, it you know it it was a meditation. It was you know set aside time. And I'd work for four or five hours every night. And um, one of those mandalic pieces um, was part of this like leftover group that I never did anything with. They've been being carried around a box for over a decade. And so I ended up um, trying to figure out what to do with them. And so I started pounding some nails into them because that was the material I was working with. And you know, one of the nails went a little bit too far through and it cracked the painting in half. And so now I have these two pieces of wood and I like the clean edges of three sides and then the top being painted in the backside being kind of, rough, you know, nondescript, but then you have that rough edge. And so if this plane now kind of took my interest. And so the nails at this point all have this kind of sway to them. And so they had, they look like legs scurrying along and then working on the top, I'm like, okay, there needs to be something up there that's kind of being moved along. And, um, I've been, using hot glue for something and had put put out a little dollop and just loved that kind of rounded clear reflective quality and so as i'm hot gluing a paint roller that was on the studio floor that i i just wanted something to be the mass and as i put it there i was like this is just too much fun to look at you know and so i just kept adding more and so that entire upper area that looks like egg row is just all hot glue no color behind it or is that just, just reflective yes yeah, just a paint roller um it's like one of those little three inch um mm -hmm. not the not the foam rollers but the but the microfiber ones right and i left the hole facing forward so that it almost looks like it could be an eye or a mouth or a thing up there and um it ended up just being a really fun play between the different textures and angle and just tilt and everything um you know if, that was one that as it finished just feeling really good about it you know, not really having any questions about the integrity of the piece itself at all. It was, mm -hmm. it was great. Um, 
But that transition from painting, I started realizing just about a decade ago that I had never really thought about the viewer and their role in the artistic process, or at least, you know, the identity of the work. And you know, had to seriously realize that I had never considered the viewer. And, you know, I think that's, I feel silly saying it, considering that, you know, spending time making art that, you know, is going to be in front of people. Um, but then I started really trying to say, well, how am I, what am I trying to say? How am I trying to say it? And how am I going to land with this experience for the viewer? And so I started dabbling in these, not dabbling, reading into ideas about semiotics and the importance of sign and having a signifier and the signified. And so I started really playing with trying to use visual imagery on a very basic, as universal as possible manner um, to kind of present this thing. And as I was working, I was building up these lines and the lines would be made up of blocks of color. And then as I overlapped the blocks of color, I got this space in between that I just love that little sliver. And so then I wanted more of that. And instead of trying to like clean it up and paint it, I just was like, let me just make like successive, like thousands of brush strokes and lines going across. And so they started to form these, you know, these flows of just brushwork and, you know, realizing then like, you know, the love of Van Gogh at 12 years old starts manifesting itself in other ways. Um, and then that allowed me to kind of find this way to fluidly create this, this like two dimensional space. But then I got fixated on just the individual brushstroke being so important and also being the multitude of them around that formed the bigger picture. So then I took that brushstroke and kind of lifted it out and started making forms based on just that kind of you know, a little bit of a parabola, but it's tapered at either end. And I just got fixated on that. Started making these sculptural forms that were themselves made up of multiples of things running all the way down. Just to give you an example. Uh, you want, you know, from like back here, this is about how tall tall it is, about 18 inches. But it's, um, these are all cigarette butts wow. that are encased in wax and caustic. And so they all have that kind of brushstroke look. And so I made a series of about nine of these, um, actually for um, the West of Seas exhibit a few years ago. And each of the different sculptures was made up of many of these things from like just these like habitual rituals in life, you know, smoking, bottle caps, receipts, um, my dog's hair, just anything and everything that I just had tons of all got kind of wrapped up into these individual little pieces. I saw one that and, had um, um, the secure inside of security envelopes. That was yeah, super so those, cool. Yeah. Yeah, that was a fun one. Um, and it was, you know, it's just, you know, I started saving them probably 15 years ago. And it was like, one day, maybe I could use this. And um, finally, I got this idea for them. And that entire project was was an attempt to really test the, um, the allotoric process of kind of randomizing an aspect of the creative process. So as I would start to work on these, I would choose where I wanted the next little cutout piece to go, but then they're all in a, in a box behind me. So I draw them blindly. And so whatever color pattern I drew had to go wherever I already picked it to be. And so then I'd pick where I wanted the next one to land and I'd have to draw whatever it was. And whether, whether it's blue, yellow, striped, whatever, next to a similar pattern, it had to go there. And that was the beginning of this process of really testing that allotoric process like can you allow something to have some degree of chaos and still have it kind of look okay like i still do that today i'll set up parameters working on a piece that 
has structure, but then there's still a lot of room for exploration and discovery. Because if I know where I'm going, I'll lose interest real quick. So you have an element of chance in there. Without the chance, it, it, it feels already done if I don't leave that chance there. And if it's already done, I don't really need to do it. Right. Just so our listeners can understand, too, what you were talking about with the cigarette butts that were kind of in these elongated shapes. To me, it, it kind of looks like a seed pod almost because it's kind of wider in the middle and it tapers to almost to points at either end. And those were, if I'm not mistaken, you had a series of those and they were kind of in descending order. So they start, they were, it was bigger, like they were longer in the middle and you made them successively smaller as it went out. There was maybe that was just one representation of them. Well, what was really fun about that is this was for the, um, for a juried exhibition of small works, um, at the Westview gallery here in Augusta, Georgia. And they do this every year. And this was the second year and I applied and I think I told them I was going to do one thing and I maybe did something a little bit different. Um, I know that when when these were delivered, I dropped them off and I was like, here you go. Bye, y'all. And um, I think there was some discussion about the um, unexpectedness of what I was dropping off because the last thing anybody had seen me do were paintings, like even like a month before that, I'm still like, here's a new painting. And then I drop off these things, which are just wildly unexpected. And so um, that presentation in the gallery where it kind of goes across and gets bigger and tapers again, that was the decision of the preparator there at the time, Troy Campbell. And um, I did not envision it that way. And I think it made it look so much better. So um, yeah, I can appreciate when a preparator is able to take a thing and just really make it like help to step it up in a way that I didn't see coming. Right. Great collaboration. Right. I think I read in one of your artist statements or something online where you were describing the process of your work or describing your work in, in a specific manner. And you were talking about how you don't want to make something comfortable or you want to, you, you want to make something that's uh, similar to what you might think it is, but it's not that. I'm totally paraphrasing it, but I'm hoping I'm giving you enough information that you can elaborate or expand on it. No, that's, um, yeah. So a few years ago, I kind of first landed on like the phrase I would say would be um, familiar novelty. And so, you know, I think that we all tend to gravitate towards those things that are familiar. Um, that helps, you know, kind of reinforce this idea that, you know, we're, we are where we need to be. We're around the people we need to be around because things are familiar. But then if everything's always so familiar, there's never anything new happening. And so you can kind of get into this cycle of just being that way. And um, I think everyone deserves the opportunity to take on more in life. And um, and so presenting this kind of novel aspect where the art itself has a familiarity to it, but you also realize that it's new, like you, you don't really know it. Um, I think my hope is that that, that novelty is what draws the person in to seek more understanding in this thing yeah that that's exactly what i was hoping to hear it must have been the artist statement or at, at the mocha show every time i have to put one out um i used to you know everybody stresses every artist statements nobody likes them i, don't I think. know and um I've, you know I, I, I bought it for a long time I, I think the fight that i wanted to put against an artist statement is what probably kept me out of even trying to really get my work out there for years was just feeling inadequate to put into words these things that I'm trying to use my hands for. Um, 
And so like most of my artist statements, I just have a Google doc and it's just a running Google doc. And whenever it's time for another, you know, exhibition or show, you just copy the previous one, paste it beneath, and then kind of starting to move things around to, uh, you know, adapt to the newer ideas that I've been developing recently. And so um, it's, it's, I don't know if it's like this for y'all, but it's like, do you ever look at your artist statement and almost feel like you didn't write it? Or kind of wondered how you pulled that out of your head. Definitely, I it, it I cr- I'm getting ang- anxiety right now thinking about <laughs> artist statements. Yeah, I th- I always look at mine and go, I wish somebody else had written this because it's not very good. I mean, I, well, I've had a couple though at times where I'll I'll look at it and I'm like, I think it may may even been the Mocha one or or one before that where it's like I read this and I'm like, I think I wrote that. But I don't, I, I don't, because I'll end up go, going into shifting things around a lot. And then last minute being like, oh no, pull that out, put this in. I think this will work better. And then losing track of like when and where I added up, added and updated things. But um, I'll take that lack of awareness of my own process and what I can move from it rather than trying to incorporate something like chat GPT to produce the artist statement. Cause that just, I don't think that would ever work for me. Yeah. Watching your work at the MoCA, seeing your stuff that you've done in the last year or so, it seems like you have a lot of energy behind it. I feel that you're um, excited about the work, and I think it's being received well as well. Um, what are you working on in the studio today, or you know, what's going to happen in 2024 with the work? Um, so 2023 is interesting in that um, start of the year and... What was I working on beginning of the year? I had like some like small studio things just kind of happening. My studio's in my house, so it's small. Uh, it's just a bedroom, but I'll, I'm in my dining room, which I use for my studio as well. And um, But I got a call in February about a show at Westaboo. And so I got, um, um, I was selected to be their marquee exhibition for the year. And um, this was the first time I'd ever had the opportunity to truly create work for like a solo exhibition that someone else asked me to do that I didn't facilitate for myself. So that kind of got, you know, that really got me motivated. And with that, having the advantage of being in Augusta, knowing that gallery space well and being able to go down and look at it, you know, I'd go down in the middle of the night sometimes or like, you know, late and it's like, Hey, I got an idea. Let me go in and look at the space and kind of see if it'll work. Um, That was helpful. And Purdue, like that piece of Desert Mocha was created specifically to be able to go into that show at Westaboo. And so um, like even the possibility of that idea only came about with the guarantee that it had somewhere to go. You know, that piece is, I mean, it's too large to, you know, to go anywhere. Um, if it doesn't have anywhere to go after the Mocha show, I'm just going to dismantle it and bring it back and turn it into something else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, this year has been, it's been interesting. A lot of the fall has been slightly just kind of exhausted um, because, you know, I spent my entire summer break from teaching, creating that piece and and others for this art show. And so it just kind of got things going. I started three or four other pieces that are in various states of being. Um, one of them's, you know, you asked what I'm working on right now. This is what I've got lined up that I'm working on right, right now. Wow, that's cool. And so it's about, what's that? Probably about six and a half feet from top to bottom. What's the material? And, uh, so it's made up of um, thread, 
So like, like all of that is thread. And then these are brass rods that are um, wrapped in wire and they have to be wrapped in wire to like create a texture that, um, that the thread can kind of grab a hold of. But um, if, you, if we can see on the backside, so it's got a, like a piece of wood back in here that it's all anchored into. And then as I apply the thread, it's gonna create more and more tension. And as it creates that tension, all the brass rods will go from out here to being curved in so that I'll stop when it's about like this. Yeah. And then it will have all the thread going around. So what you were talking about, Chase, was for the audiences, just the form itself looks like a bicycle wheel, I would say, with the spokes expanding from the yeah. center part of it, like a six foot mm -hmm. radius. Um, yeah, it's it's got its center point and then um, 22, I think it's got like 22 rods coming off of it. Right on. Can we can we just back up a little bit? I'm, I know Kevin's seen the piece at MoCA, but I have not seen it up in person. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that piece. I mean, it just, I mean, it, it's super cool to look at. It looks like this giant kind of um, organic alien looking thing that's got, it kind of has a basket quality underneath, but then it's got these things kind of sprouting out of it. And it's, I think it's hanging from the ceiling. Is that, is that right in the way you said? Yeah. Do you sketch these things out first or is this just you grabbing materials and you're like, I know you were talking about making something to fit a space or the space for that other show. Um, talk a little bit about this piece in particular, cause I'm, I'm fascinated by this thing. Um, so that piece, um, as soon as I got the notification for the show at Westaboo, um, there are times where, you know, if you have a deadline, you're like, okay, I got to work on that thing. And I, I remember like sitting down, like the night that I got the notification, I'm like, okay, this is a thing. And I'm going to kind of figure it out. And by the next night I'd kind of just started like opening up the idea of floodgates. Do y'all mm -hmm. just kind of like open it up and things just start flowing out and just writing down notes and this and this and that. And that was one of them. And it was just this thing that had like multiple tubes that were all just moving together that, you know, kind of bound towards one end, but, but flaring out on the other. And I started to consider the scale and the size. And I was only really limited by um, the door to go into the building, um, which was at like 55 inches. And so I'm like, well, that's, that's what I got to work with. And so I started working on that and I sketched it out five or six times. And, um, through the sketching, I kind of get a sense of like how it's going to, how it's going to be. And I'd never worked on anything of this scale. Um, the largest I'd ever done of, of a sculpture was maybe something three and a half, four feet across. And so this piece, um, it ended up being like eight and a half feet in two directions and Oof. four and a half in another. But as I developed that idea, um, I try not to delve too soon into what I think a piece is about or what it's supposed to represent or mean. It's more about just this like in, intrigue with the form itself coming into being. And so entrusting that. And I like I just kept looking at this one. I'm like, I like it. I want to I want to see what it looks like when it's made. And so I started sourcing materials after planning out like what how to make this thing and I was going to I was going to need a bunch of circles of different sizes and diameters and um I couldn't find a way to source that in an affordable manner 
Like I was trying to look at Amazon to find like big steel rings for wreaths and things like that. And I couldn't get the variability that I felt this piece needed. And so I'd actually stopped thinking about it. And I was about three weeks or five weeks into not working on it. And I'm working in the yard and I'm tearing up some vines and um, get Virginia creeper. And I kind of make it into this like little wreath type ring thing. And as I look at that, I'm like, oh my God, I got vines everywhere. So Virginia creeper is too um, soft and loose, but I have a lot of green briar. You know about green green briar? Mm-hmm. Like really thick vine that's got the thorns that feel like wasp stings. So I ended up using those. So all the rings in that piece at Mocha, they're all made up of green briar vine and um, made up about 85 of them, I think. And um, varying in size from like six inches up to about 18, I think. How do you attach the rings or the wreaths together? So um, I, I got wooden dowels off Amazon, I think like eight eighth of an inch, and then just put like seven or eight going all the way around and then just tied them off. I used the tension of the actual um, green briar as much as I could and then very, very softly wrapped um, some thread around that and then cheesecloth around that and then wrapped it again with thread and then started spraying it with shellac so it could kind of begin to bind. And um, I had already made like all 11 of the big pieces and I'd started wrapping them in cheesecloth. And then I realized that the this sculpture is going to be too big to get out of my house. Yeah. Because I was trying to make it like right here behind me in the dining room and it was working. But, you know, I had my dog at the time and, you know, he was old and had to pick up everything when he wasn't napping and then put it back down. And it was it was a whole kind of, you know, or ordeal. But um, I called up the people at Westaboo and I said, hey, do y'all happen to know anybody who has an empty space? And so there's someone who has been supportive of artists in similar situations in the past. And um, they made a vacant building half a block from the gallery available for the month of July and August. And so I was able to set up there and spread out into this entire, you know, first floor. Actually, I only used about a third of the space, Um, but I had plenty of room to like pick up these eight foot pieces and store it over here and get another one and um, had to get a um, spray gun so I could actually spray shellac at that scale um, to be able to cover, you know, 11 of these things. And um, it was fun. It sounds like it. it, it, it kept going, but there were, I say it's fun. There are about three points where I almost stopped um, just because realizing how large it is, how long it's going to take, how far can I really push it? I have to go back to teaching before the show starts. You know, it's like, how am I going to get this done? Um, you know, I've already bought, you know, 10 gallons of shellac and gone through it. I'm getting my third box of cheesecloth. This is like bulk cheesecloth. So there are all these, you know, moments that it's just more and more and more. Um, but at the same time, it's learning how to manage that, you know, how to ensure that you see it through. You make the decisions that have to be made to get the piece done. Um, and, yeah, I had, I had to then just move everything to the loading dock because the roll-up door in the loading dock would be the only way to get it out of that building. And it only weighs about 50 pounds. So we just carried it out the back of the loading dock down the street and through the door. It was a little bit wide. We had to pinch it in just just to squeeze it through. And same thing at Mocha. Mocha's hall- hallway was narrower though, so we had to pull it in about five inches. But it's got enough flexibility. It's okay. Were you pleased with the show? The you know how it was presented, and, and were you happy with the, the work? Show in the- or- um, 
Um, no, not the, the, the pre mocha show. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I am so appreciative of how they were able to hang the, hang the work at mocha because in Augusta, um, there was concern about the ceiling being so old and um, like the old tin ceilings, they weren't sure if it would be able to, you know, what was up there to hold it. And so we had to use a cradle. So I built a cradle for it here. But when I got it to Atlanta, um, I was looking at it with the preparator and he was like, I think we can do it. And he got it up by Thursday and then sent me pictures. I'm at school seeing it like, you know, giddy like a kid on Christmas morning, you know, it's like, Oh, finally got what I was going for. You know, I was, um, but yeah, I it was great i was setting up my work on a saturday the saturday that you dropped yours off but driving down bennett street so i had to go to home depot to get some other supplies for my installation driving down bennett street and i see this u-haul coming towards the, the museum um and i'm like wow that would be really cool you know if that was another artist bringing their work and then i don't know an hour later or whatever 45 minutes later i arrived back and started doing my thing and then I see a handful of guys like four or five guys kind of getting this thing through the hallway and and into the gallery space and I don't know it was it, I'm a fan of your work I guess it, it was it was great to see the whole process getting it into the space and seeing you guys really excited about it as well that was uh, a, a, an interesting perspective that I got to witness so it was it was fun yeah, it was, um, I mean, it was kind of nerve wracking because, you know, I'm, I'm even like, are we going to get it there? You know, yeah. is it going to like something going to happen? Just anything. Right. And, um, like e even that day, I, like I hardly rem remember even talking to anybody in there because I'm just like, can we, can we just get it in, set it up and make sure they know what to do. And I got to turn in the U-Haul by like four o'clock. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of like a drop it off. Here's my vision of it. Um, please do what you can. And um, again, go, going back to the exhibition years ago when the preparator was able to present it in such a nice way, you know, up at MoCA, being able to have it, you know, there with the light and the angle. I mean, he got it all just right. I loved it. So Awesome. Yeah. Um, it, it looks like it has a very large, like, presence, yeah, almost exactly. like you feel like you're in the room with something that's kind of alive, you know? And it's, yeah, it brings wanted, curiosity too. I'm like, what the hell is that thing? And you get closer and you're like, I don't know. I still don't know. And it's right in front of me. I don't, but I like it. It know? almost, it almost wants me to see an environment, you know, with that, you know, it almost looks like it could be growing and, you know, I yeah. could see that as an asset, you know, I know we talk to some, some sculptors and, but that this almost looks like some kind of, a, could be part of an alien, you know, landscape or something. An environment. Yeah, you like plucked this thing out and it's one of, you know, hundreds or thousands. Yeah, Not that I'd, you have to make that many. I don't I don't want to put that pressure on you. That that would well, be you, know, you need a bigger space for that. Um, I thought it fit in. Yeah. The previous gathered show a couple of years ago, um it didn't have as much energy as this show does, and I think that's because of pieces like yours or Justin Archer's larger sculptures. Like the the thing that makes it for me at this Mocha Gathered show is the pieces that are in the middle of the space. It just kind of, it breaks up the, the room. Right. Yeah, it gives you focal points, something to look at. As you know, when you're looking across the room, it, it break, these larger pieces break up the, the, the space. Um, yeah, sometimes if they're, if, 
if everything's on the wall, you have that large space in the middle and, you know, it makes it easier to have a direct line somewhere, but then you're not interacting with the space. You're simply traversing it. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, having those sculptures scattered throughout, but like, you know, in a nice setting and such becomes this thing that even you trying to get to the other side of the room, you have to maneuver them. You have to acknowledge that they're there and in that moment get to experience them. You know, there's a Caroline and I'm from Florida. Um, there's a Caroline in central Florida called Bach Tower and the person that did the landscaping for it was Frederick Law Olmsted, who also did um, oh, yeah. Central Park. Um, I'll get back on topic and <laughs> let me drive over a little bit. But It's fine. I've got a tie-in for Olmsted. Okay. <laughs> but he his philosophy and design was always, you never just bring them right to, um, like in that case, Bach Tower, you want to kind of meander through the space. And it... Um, it creates a level of interest for the person uh, digesting the information. I um, probably about a decade ago, I was working on this painting and um, it was about 32, two inches. And I had like um, put it outside the studio and then I went to my truck to get something. And as I'm walking back, I'm about, you know, 70 feet away and I see it and it's a different painting than what I'd seen up close in the studio. And so I'm realizing that I'm like, oh, it registers differently from a distance. And so then as I'm walking forward, it begins to move into this other way of being seen. I can see these aspects that I couldn't see at a distance that now become integral to being part of the piece. And then as I arrive up on up right on right in front of it, getting to now see details that I couldn't see midway back and surely not all the way back. It was my first experience of having created a piece that kind of worked on at different stages so that as people approach, they get to kind of update their experience of the piece in real time over a matter of just like seconds and such. And that's what initially got me excited about drawing people in. So they see this thing and just as they think they begin to understand it, there's more in there for them to discover and work with. And so that's been one of the underlying drives of of the work that I create is trying to have that experience for the viewer and kind of going back to having to acknowledge that a decade ago, I was not considering the viewer and not considering their experience and what they could get out of it. You know, now I'm trying to factor in more to create this experience for the viewer. Um, but yeah, I like the offset angle. Somehow he ended up in Augusta, Georgia, and um, we have a lake here named Lake Olmstead Okay. because he designed a park around it. Nice. And this was like, yeah, 120, yep. 130. Yeah, definitely. So as a person that's never been to Augusta before, I there's something there that seems to draw some, draw artistic people and there's a creativity and a creative energy that is typically Augusta. I am interested in taking a trek there just to, you know, to, to see some art. Do you have any about- thoughts about where you know, we can go to, to check out some, some new stuff. Sure. Um, I would, I mean, in Augusta, the, the main place that I've, you know, that's just been phenomenal for me as an artist, but I think for the community as well over the last decade is Westaboo gallery. And, um, that's where the show that I had was, and they started as like a festival, but then they got a physical space and they have a gallery. Now they do like year, year round 
shows and everything. But they've been incredibly supportive of artists looking for new opportunities and coming up with ideas and doing micro grants to help them do these like smaller projects in the public space um, to help, you know, give us opportunity just to kind of kind of get out of our box. So Westaboo for for sure. Um, otherwise, you know, you, you've got a number of shops around town. Gertrude Herbert has been here for like been in place for like over 100 years. Um, Gertrude Herbert Institute of Art. Um, it used to be kind of a place where people in the winter would come down from the north. And there was a very, very active arts community here in the turn of the century, like 100 years ago. So I checked check them out. But I'll also say about Augusta and the artist here. Augusta is just small enough to not be Atlanta, to not be Columbia or Charlotte or Greenville or Charleston. And so even growing up here, the bands would never stop in Augusta. You know, all the cool stuff. You, you have to go to Athens to see good bands. I mean, that's right. Where all the right. And so Augusta just had to kind of learn how to be its own thing. And I think artists here are still doing that. Um, there's not always been a great platform for being able to get your art out there and put it in front of people and have a conversation. And so I think that that's informed a lot of the identity of Augusta artists to kind of have that, you know, tenacity, just figure it out, you know, figure out, you know, where you're going to make your work. Most everybody I know works out of their home or a shed in their backyard, you know, um, studio space. They've tried for decades to try to get that here. But the challenge is that when you have somewhere like Savannah, that's a, um, tourist destination and you have fresh people coming through all the time and they want to take a memento home and they want to see something new. Um, they're able to find that, you know, in Augusta, we don't have the tourism market to be able to have someone have a studio with a storefront out front where you can sell to people coming by because nobody comes by. And so, um, the idea of actually having studios is nice, but it's not, um, it's not realistic. It's not sustainable. You know, yeah, and um, they've tried a few times through different organizations, and um, yeah, so we we all just have to kind of figure out how to do our thing. But but that's also made it so that um, you have a lot of people who don't worry about making commercial art or work that they know is going to make them money, or some do that on the side and still do their own thing. But I think the art that a lot of the artists around here end up making is what they need to make. Like it's it's them more than what they're producing for for the for the market and i think that the authenticity in the work in that sense um you know it sings a different song you know you hear it and you're like hey, okay i see what's happening there and that's that's nice you know um i'm appreciative of it as much as i front as i was frustrated for years trying to work through it um resolving about three years ago four years ago not having any success really you know, um, I think I've had like two years, like maybe one year not in the red at the end of the year, as far as like spending for the art that you make um, and just being like, I'm going to make it whatever I want. It doesn't matter anymore. And so a piece like What's at Mocha is the result of that decision to um, you know, do what I think I need to do. I think that's a good spot to stop. Uh, I don't know. We have one more question to ask you, though. Okay. <laughs> What's the soundscape like in your studio? Do you like to listen to music? <laughs> Not only do we want new things to, to explore, but we, we like to get an idea of what your space is like. Do you listen to music? 
you like quiet or, you know, what's going on in there when you're working? Um, it goes back and forth. Like sometimes I'll go for just absolute quiet because some days that's just, just what feels good. It's what kind of works. Um, I would say a majority of the time I do have music probably considerably loud. Um, I don't really like headphones like Cigarettes. I really love James McMurtry. Um, but probably a majority of the time I'm listening to live fish concerts. There you go. You could work for a long time listening to one fish song. Yeah, and this summer, the entire summer tour was happening when I was working on that piece that's at MoCA. So, like, every morning I'd go in and I'd get set up, get everything going, and I'd find the show from last night, hit play, and just crank it out. There you go. And, I mean, just sound. It was great. Did you know that they're going to be at the Sphere in Vegas? Did you hear about that? I put in my request for the tickets. It's exciting. That's that's exciting. It is. I mean... The lighting guy for the band has been with them since the late 80s, and everything he's done has been self-taught, like everybody in the band. And so when he presents a show, it's just this, it's, it's an exquisite light show. And every every year, he's finding new ways to explore what he's doing. And um, I was at the show um, in New York a few years ago where it was like Earth Day, and we're all there enjoying the show and they're like got all this fancy stuff happening we're like well, that's cool and that's cool and then all of a sudden they're they're dolphins swimming through madison square garden and they had set up the lights to hit the top like light dappling at the water but you're under the water and then they bring out this like almost life-size whale and they're all drones so they're flying these things through madison square garden with the smoke and you know, you know, the haze and the lights and everything. And you're like, we're underwater. This wow. is fantastic. Yeah. So being able to, like, I mean, I take inspiration from that of, you know, trying to create something new every time you're, you're in the studio, you know, once I, you know, like I said earlier, once I know where I'm going, I lost interest. So always trying to find something fresh, find a new angle, introduce a new material, um, let, put two new materials intersecting to see what happens. Um, I mean, a lot of what happens in the studio is just play. It's just trying this or that and seeing where it goes. And if it's good, factor into something else later and accept how it's going to change then as well. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate your time with us today. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing your your work in person, but also looking um, forward to seeing what is in 2024 and what new things are are coming out of your studio because I'm a fan for sure. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you all so much for the opportunity to talk. Um, I don't get to do this very often, so it's been fun. All right. Best of luck, Chase. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye.